Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, a new immigration report makes a case for more newcomers, but how many do we need? And what about housing? The Canadian government says a ban on arms sales to Turkey was imposed, but they won't explain why. Should we be concerned? And we discuss the roadmap to reform in Canada's healthcare system with Don Drummond, Stouffer Dunning Fellow and Adjunct Professor at the School of Policy Studies at Queen's University. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Another key issue these days, of course, is immigration. Uh, the, the politicians and, and the experts are telling us that we need more immigrants. And I totally agree with that. Absolutely agree with that. And this country was built on immigration, and uh, it's going to be one of the keys to success. But there seems to be some pushback from some people suggesting that, look, we've got a housing crisis. Uh, this is not the right time to be bringing more people in. Well, there's a new report out that says, no, it is the right time. Laurie Paris has some details for us. The report analyzes how much population growth among working-age Canadians is necessary to maintain the old age dependency ratio, which refers to the ratio between 15 to 64-year-olds and those aged 65 and up. It found the working-age population would have to grow by 2.2% per year through 2040 to maintain the same ratio that existed last year. Randall Bartlett, a senior director of Canadian economics at Desjardins, says the country needs higher levels of immigration to be able to pay for higher health care costs brought on by an aging population. But he concedes the housing market squeeze brought on by higher immigration is a problem and it could erode support for immigration in Canada. Laurie Paris, the Canadian Press. Well, let's talk with one of the co-authors of that report. Randall Bartlett is a senior director for Canadian economics for Desjardins and he is with us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Randall, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate the time today. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Bill. I was fascinated when I read uh, the the overview of the report here because you guys take it much different tack. People initially, and I think some of the ones who may have some opposition or some concerns about more immigrants coming in here, are just saying, where are we going to put them all? How are we going to house them? Uh, but you, you look at this from an economic standpoint and a practicality standpoint uh, that we need them. <laughs> if we need more houses, we need people to come in and build them for us. That's one thing. And there's so many other aspects, too, that we, we are really dependent upon having a, a large number of people in the working class that can contribute to, to the social safety net, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So what we try to do with this report is uh, sort of take a look at uh, the economic implications of immigration, both in the, the short term as well as the very long term. And so, uh, you know, in the, the short term, obviously, we have uh, you know record, all, all near record high job vacancies. They've come down, uh, but we've had a lot of job vacancies in this country. And a lot of the reason they've been getting filled is because we've been bringing in record numbers of newcomers. But we still have a very high level of job vacancies in this country. Uh, and in the long term, certainly, uh, Certainly, we're going to need to continue to see a, a healthy pace of immigration in order to uh, backfill those positions that are being left by older Canadians and help to support uh, the healthcare costs of, uh, of an aging population. And so immigration, both in the near term and the long term, is something that is supporting economic growth in Canada. But certainly there are the consequences in the near term of bringing in large numbers of, uh, of newcomers to the country uh, when we're not able to build uh, adequate housing, provide that, that, uh, that shelter that uh, those new Canadians Canadians need in a way that's going to be affordable for not just them, but all Canadians. And so there are short-term challenges as well. Well, there are some things here that you mentioned in the report that, that maybe some Canadians sort of take for granted. Yeah, it's, it's been there and it's always going to be there for me. And one of them is, is the Canada Pension Plan. Uh, I know there are still some people that seem to think, well, I paid into it. So I, you know, when I retire, I'm going to get all that money back. You don't. <laughs> uh, what you paid into it is now paying for people that are already gaining CPP. 
And if there aren't enough people in the workforce, when you retire, uh, you may not get a pension. I mean, that's the worst case scenario. But I mean, it's it's reliant upon having people in the workforce to contribute to that plan, isn't it? Well, in the case of uh, healthcare spending in particular in Canada, certainly uh, all of our healthcare spending is funded out of current revenues. So current workers today pay for the uh, the, the the aging uh, population uh, today as well. And so as baby boomers age, uh, we we need a working population that's able to provide adequately for uh, for their uh, their healthcare. Otherwise, that's going to put provincial. Uh, in particular, provincial fiscal sustainability at at risk, and uh, may require them to either cut spending elsewhere, raise taxes, or uh, or issue debt to pay for uh, for healthcare spending, which puts the burden on future generations. And so, certainly uh, on that side of it, uh, it is uh, it is a key issue on the healthcare side. Uh, when it comes to CPP, I mean, uh, generally CPP, if you look at uh, analysis done by the provincial budget officer, like, it's generally considered to be uh, adequately funded in order to meet those long term obligations as they're investing in. Uh, you know, both public and private uh, assets and making uh, generally pretty healthy returns on those. But certainly it's uh, something that uh, is going to benefit significantly from bringing in higher population that is going to be providing uh, or contributing to the plan going forward. Well, I remember the analogy, I guess, when they first started talking about this way back when uh, they used the pyramid analogy, you know, that there's at the bottom of the wider part of the pyramid, uh, there's all these people that are working and contributing to these plans, and and that's you know going to make it easy for the people that are at the top who have retired uh, to be able to benefit from this. But that pyramid, it's at one point seems to have turned right around, and there are more people retiring than there were coming in. We can't let that happen continually, or we're going to re- really be in a problem in the future, aren't we? Yeah, absolutely. As uh, as people get older, they uh, tend to work less, of course, as they uh, scale back hours and then uh, and then ultimately retire. Um, so that weighs on economic growth overall, and so that weighs on our tax base. That uh, weighs on you know our standard of living, really, at the end of the day. And so um, that's a, a big consideration. At the same time, that the costs associated with those uh, with people as they age uh, increase, particularly for healthcare, increase almost exponentially on an individual basis as people get older. And so there are these uh, these significant impacts on both the economy and on uh, and on government spending as uh, as the population ages. And so uh, as a result, you know, it, it, we really need to have, uh, you know, sustained growth in the working age population to make sure that uh, people have the services that uh, that they want. And quite frankly, that they've uh, that they've come to expect as they get older. A couple of other things here that you addressed in the report, which I think are, are very, very helpful to for people to gain an understanding about this. Uh, and one is is the the myth, I think, that some people seem to, to perpetuate here is that immigrants are just a drain on society. They come in here, they, they've gone into our social safety net, uh, they're not contributing, they go on social assistance oftentimes, which is a, a falsehood. I mean, I think people are conflating immigrants with refugees, and there are differences, as, as you point out in the report. Uh, the people that are coming in here through those immigration channels are oftentimes very, very talented people that immediately start to contribute to the, the society and to our, our social safety net. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and there's really been a sea change in the last decade in terms of the uh, labor market outcomes that uh, that new newcomers to Canada have in terms of uh, how quickly they find a job, the level of compensation that they get at those jobs when they find them, and so particularly the economic immigrant stream, which is about sixty percent of uh, permanent residents coming into Canada, uh, have exceptionally strong outcomes, and are actually their outcomes are better than workers that are on average than workers that are born in Canada, and so they are performing extremely well. 
while. We still have folks coming in through the refugee stream, through family reunification, that sort of thing, whose outcomes aren't as strong as those economic immigrants or underperforming workers born in Canada, but they are a minority of the of folks coming in uh, through the permanent resident channels. But when you look at the, really what's driving the population growth in Canada right now, it's it's non-permanent residents. And so those are folks coming in uh, as temporary foreign workers or as foreign students. And when you think about you know the temporary foreign worker stream, which make up the bulk of those non-permanent residents, those are folks coming in at the request of employers who are saying, I can't find workers uh, that I need at you know reasonable levels of compensation in my area. And so they're appealing to the federal government and saying, I need to bring these workers in because I can't actually find them in Canada. And that's really what's been driving the population growth in Canada over the last year. So how would you rate and, and, and maybe even braid or evaluate uh, how we're doing this right now? I mean, we brought in an awful lot of people post-pandemic. Uh, and, and as you say, that's that's made a very positive impact on workforce and, and filling some of these vacancies. Uh, but the, the governments, both our provincial government here in Ontario and, of course, the federal government, have made a point of, of reminding us that uh, that they are looking at these applications and they, they're trying to bring in uh, doctors, now nurses. I mean, in other words, they seem to be uh, doing something that past generations haven't done, as that is as a, acknowledge the accreditations that, that these people have uh, in whatever country they're coming from and bringing that talent and, and those accreditations in so they can immediately be a, a positive force in, in our society. No, absolutely. And I think it's, uh, you know, it's phenomenal that we have alignment at all levels of government in terms of support for uh, immigration and bringing in talented people that we need to fill labor market gaps in Canada, whether that's uh, in, in the uh, the healthcare sector or uh, in uh, skilled trades in order to build the housing that we need in this country. I think that that's incredibly important. I think where we have a real problem, though, quite frankly, is the disconnect uh, between levels of government and within levels of government when it comes to actually building more housing in this country, which has really become the sticking point around immigration, that we just can't seem to build enough housing to support people. Really, what we need to do is get back to sustained levels of building, or even beyond the levels of building that we saw in the 1970s when the baby boomers came of age, and we were and we were building uh, substantial amounts of housing to make sure that they were able to support their families in this country and shelter and house their families. And so I think really that's where the uh, the misalignment is at this point. And it's it's incumbent on all levels of government to really, you know, take this issue seriously, stop finger pointing and get some housing built in Canada. Well, that's because there was a time when both the federal and provincial governments, I mean, right across the country, uh, were major contributors to those plans. And, and they stopped, I guess, around the, the mid to late 1980s. Uh, and they're they're sort of back in the game, but they haven't anteed up a whole lot on this right now. Uh, and they keep pointing to you know we need to build more housing, build housing. Well, you know, stop talking about it and start doing it. Uh, there's so much red tape and so many problems that that I guess we've ignored. And it, it's it's interesting. I think really, Randall, that you know we talk about how the the pandemic caused a lot of problems, certainly, but what it also did was shone the light on some problems that already existed and probably you know magnified those problems. This is one of those situations. You know, now that it's over, we need more people in this country. We haven't prepared ourselves for it. And, and but that's that's on us. That's not on the immigrants. No, that's it. That's it exactly. And so, um, you know, really, uh, you know, we need to look at all levels of government, what they can do to really make this happen. I mean, a lot of people, you know, look to the federal government and say, well, you know, they need to be doing more, which they do. But uh, the federal government largely taxes and transfers. And so they can provide those financial incentives and they can, you know, do some other things on the margins. But really, the focus needs to be at lower levels of government, the provinces and municipalities to say, okay, we're getting that red tape out of the way. And we're going to make sure that, you know, we're providing 
providing incentives for uh, developers to be able to build the kind of housing that we want to see built in our uh, in our communities. And we've got a role to play that in that too. I mean, you know, the general population, we in this community, that community, whatever, uh, we've got to understand exactly how important that is. That uh, that you know, we we've got to change our attitudes about this. I mean, you know, the the nimbyism that, that seems to prosper in, in some neighborhoods right now is is a, a major roadblock. And elected officials, even at the municipal level, oftentimes will, will pander to that. And that's that's holding up the process, too. You know, we need something built. And, and there's one or two neighbors that say, well, I don't want that sort of thing in my neighborhood. There's got to be an understanding at some point that, that it's going to be there uh, because we need it as a community. Uh, and, and you've got to, you know, you've got to be a player here, too. Yeah, it's it's really it's really challenging. And so, I mean, every, everyone is you know operating with the incentives that they're that they're working in and um you know it's, it's understandable certainly but it's not just a question of um you know housing newcomers to canada it's also a question of housing um you know our, our children and uh yeah. looking ahead you know looking at the affordability of of uh, future generations you know we need to make sure that this is a country that's affordable for everyone to have housing that's adequate for their needs and that they can actually afford and so uh you know looking ahead that's going to become increasingly challenged and not just because of immigration, uh, but because of the fact that uh, you know we've seen that housing prices uh, have uh, have taken off in the country, and you know have, uh, much faster than incomes, and it's a challenge for everybody. So it needs to be, I think, a a, a, a whole of uh, Canada perspective as opposed to uh, one group versus another group. That we we all need to have affordable and sustainable housing. I don't know if you had an opportunity as you were doing the research for the paper here, Randall, to, to see where we stood on a global basis in Canada. Are, are there are there other countries that are doing it better than we are right now that we can learn from? Well, this is a, a great uh, question, Bill, because we're actually putting out a piece um, in August looking at um, the sort of greatest hits of housing supply policy <laughs> around the world. And so, uh, you know, the things that we're, we're looking at is, you know, where have countries been able to do it, uh, do it really well and be able to increase that supply. And again, it's, it's all levels of government uh, that have a role to play in this. Uh, but certainly uh, when it comes to reducing barriers uh, to building, that's the low hanging fruit, uh, looking at, you know, getting rid of things like exclusionary zoning and that sort of thing, uh, you know, things like parking minimums and these kind of things that are put in place uh, that are really a hindrance to, to building, which are which are very much unnecessary and are quite outdated. Uh, looking at things like providing financial incentives, so where can the tax system be used in order to you know maybe reduce taxes to get you know the types of housing that we want built, like taking the HST off building purpose built rentals, that sort of thing. There's a lot of success stories around the world, so we're putting out a report on that soon. Also, the uh, the Ontario Chamber of Commerce released a report quite recently in partnership with Desjardins on uh, measures that can be taken um, in the province of Ontario um, by various, all levels of government and industry in order to support building in this country. So um, yeah, I definitely would direct your uh, your readers to that because uh, there are there are there is low-hanging fruit out there and there are a lot of opportunities to really move obstacles out of the way and start pushing ahead on building new housing in this country. Well, look, I look forward to having that discussion when that paper is released. Uh, this is very insightful, uh, and folks can uh, check this out in, in, at their leisure and have a look at the report, too, because I think it really puts things in in a proper perspective on this. Randall, thanks for doing the great work on this, and thanks a lot for spending some time with us this morning. Really appreciate it. It's been my pleasure, Bill. Thanks a lot for having me. Take care. Randall Bartlett, uh, Senior Director of Canadian Economics for Desjardins. Uh, and it's it's... They keep talking, excuse me, the housing crisis, and it is indeed a crisis situation, but it's fixable. And I think that was the, the thrust of the paper that Desjardins has done here. Uh, there are some solutions out there. It's, it's going to take some political courage, 
absolutely, uh, to move forward on these uh, because there's going to be some pushback on that. But the, the, the elected officials are going to have to resist that and just understand that for the greater good, we're going to have to do housing, all kinds of housing, uh, including high rises, including multi residentials, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, and it's it's going to have an impact on neighborhoods, you know. But, you know, the days of having a 95-foot frontage on your property and saying, I don't want anybody else around here, are probably over, okay, for the short term and maybe even for the long term. It's going to be a different world in which we live, but it can be a better world, too, if we all cooperate and understand that uh, this is all for the common good of, of the greater community. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We want to talk about what's uh, happening, uh, certainly, with, uh, with the, the war in Ukraine, uh, not to be put on the back burner. I mean, you know, it's over 500 days in the war right now. And uh, the NATO meeting last week, they talked about significant uh, contributions that uh, all NATO countries can make militarily and otherwise. And uh, the, the feeling here is that this thing can't drag on. I mean, nobody wants it to, certainly. I mean, I'm sure Putin wanted this thing done a week after they started the invasion. And that's uh, one of his big disappointments, I'm sure. But what are we going to do going forward? Well, that was part of the discussion behind closed doors at NATO. Uh, And uh, one of the other big stories out of that meeting, of course, uh, was the fact that Turkey finally uh, relented and and backed away from their opposition uh, to uh, the new members of NATO. Now, Ukraine's not going to be allowed in there just as as of yet, uh, but there was some concern, of course, about uh, the Scandinavian countries being allowed in there. Uh, what deals were made? Well, our next guest might have some insight into that. Stephen Chase is a senior parliamentary reporter for the Globe and Mail, and uh, his story, uh, I, I think, gives us a different perspective on what may have been discussed. Uh, Canada, at this point, will not say if it's in talks to lift the ban on arms sales to Turkey. Stephen Chase, of course, is a senior parliamentary reporter for the Globe and Mail, and he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Stephen, good to have you back on the program. Thanks so much for this today. Oh, great to be here. Is there? A, a, can we connect the dots here? The quid pro quo that the, the Turkey uh, has finally decided to to relent with their their concern about who's going to be in NATO and who's not going to be, and the fact that we, even though say we're not supposed to be selling arms to Turkey, we seem to be doing it in kind of a a, a backdoor way. Yeah, I think we can. Um, Erdogan finally uh, dropped his opposition to uh, Sweden uh, entering NATO, and there were a number of uh, I think a number of. Uh, like consequences for that, one of which, according to the Turkish media at least, uh, we're getting news from Turkey that Canada signaled it would uh, revisit its arms embargo on uh, Turkey, uh, and the Canadian government is sort of playing footsie with answering questions, not really being clear about it. Uh, on the one hand, they're saying it's in, it's it's in place at the moment, but they refuse to discuss what's being reported in the Turkish media by journalists uh, who are good connections with the Turkish government, that Canada has agreed to start talking about lifting this ban. So it looks like, uh, you know, it looks like something's happening. It looks like uh, uh, we are basically putting a, uh, uh, we've opened the door to something, but uh, it could take a while before we get more uh, certainty on this. And of course, there's a, a bit of a backstory I can get into if you'd like. Yeah, sure. Because I think a lot of us were rather skeptical. I mean, it was good news that, that they finally said, okay, we'll back away. Sweden can come in. Uh, but but sure. yeah, they were so steadfast in their opposition to it, and all of a sudden they weren't. So you figure, say, something had to be promised or some sort of a deal had to be made. Absolutely. And, uh, of course, the Americans are helping them out with weapon sales, so that's uh, probably mm-hmm. the biggest uh, reward. But, of course, 
Canada makes these uh, amazing um, drone or airstrike targeting gear. This is these cameras, these sensors that you put on drones, and they become you know really cheap but effective uh, sort of replacements for having an air force. You can basically shoot uh, people. You can basically target armies uh, very efficiently and, and, and at a better cost than airplanes. We make these things. They're um, they're made by a company in Ontario. And what happened was Canada and other countries put an arms embargo on Turkey, which is unusual because we're a NATO ally, but because they'd sent forces into northern Syria, that was considered crossing a red line back in 2019. However, we relented on our arms embargo. We, we relaxed it to allow all these uh, sensors, or what are called airstrike targeting gear, to be sent to Turkey to be put on Turkish drones called Bayraktar. They're, they're very effective military drones that are basically are attack drones. And then what we found was that there was a conflict between Azerbaijan and Ar- Armenia. Uh, Azerbaijan is a big ally of Turkey's. And lo and behold, these Turkish drones with these Canadian cameras, sensors, were being used to kill Armenians. And they were being shot down in, in Armenia. And we actually, the Globe Mail sent uh, reporters and photographers out there to verify that these are, in fact, the very same cameras made in Ontario. So the Canadian government... Uh, locked down uh, about 30 uh, permits, uh, shut them off, suspended them, canceled them, and that was it. We were basically um, back to a full arms embargo. Uh, and, of course, it was a, a very embarrassing situation for Canada because there was a subsequent investigation by the government and by the parliament, and it found out that Turkey had lied to us. Turkey had said they needed these to protect civilians. Uh, they needed these drones to protect civilians. They needed the, the sensors to go on them to help protect civilians because they could also be used for... Um, photographer surveillance, uh, and in fact, uh, they completely um, uh, illegally diverted these these weapons to their allies. So yeah, it's a, a, a it was a big story. We have a we have a significant Armenian community in Canada. They were uh, they were there was a lot of outrage back in uh, 2020 and 2021, and uh, so it's a bit it's being greeted by the Armenian community uh, for sure with a lot of trepidation. Uh, yeah, and just uh, for context, uh, for our Hamilton listeners, uh, the company that you're referring to, of course, is is uh, Westcam, L3 Harris Westcam, uh, which is in Burlington. They, they actually started in Hamilton, moved to a bigger uh, operation in Burlington some years ago. Uh, and, and I wasn't aware they were making these these sorts of products. I mean, they've had a, an incredibly quick rise to the top in their own particular field, uh, but they're also t- contributing to the military. And I, I guess one of the concerns here, though, is, as you point out in your article, Stephen, uh, Turkey was a very popular a buyer of this. I mean, there was a pretty strong relationship there. They took a lot of Canadian product before this embargo went into place, didn't they? Yes. Up until uh, the last, the last year there was an actual uh, transfer of arms was 2019. And it was $150 million of a product. Much of it, these, these uh, surveillance and reconnaissance, uh, uh, you know, uh, optics that we were sending for the drones, and of course, I my impression is is that the Turkish the Turkish were really angry when we uh, reinstituted this embargo, uh, and they've tried to find substitutes in from Italy and other countries. Um, but I think one Canada makes uh, very good um, airstrike targeting gear, and they're being used in um, on, in drones that are being deployed by Ukraine uh, against Russia. So. I, I think that the Turks would love to have access to these um, this airstrike targeting gear again. 
how was the, the NATO opinion of, of, of Turkey? They're a member, as, as you mentioned uh, just a couple of minutes ago. We know that. Uh, and I don't even know if you could even classify them as a member in good standing because, I mean, they they have a rather antagonistic attitude here and, and, a, and a relationship with Vladimir Putin, too, that, that yes, might trouble some they of are, members. They are one of the allies of Vladimir Putin, and it's a strange situation for a NATO ally. I mean, I think Canada, I think the... the the NATO alliance needs Turkey because of the Straits of Bosphorus, because of the waterways, mm-hmm. the very vital waterways uh, that Turkey has control over, and also because of their efforts in containing uh, problems to the south of Turkey in places like Syria and preventing it from spilling over into Europe. So I think uh, uh, Turkey is sort of, um, is uh, what's the word, tolerated because yeah. Uh, of of the the things it brings to the alliance is geographical significance, but yeah, it does not behave like a uh, a member in good standing. Well, I guess the question is, can we trust them? Uh, and and part B to that question is, uh, can we anticipate that there's going to be a, an official announcement from the Canadian government in the not too distant future that that uh, the embargo is over, or that at least it's being relaxed? <laughs> well, the one thing about the Canadian government is uh, they take their sweet time, so. The only yeah. blessing for those who do not want this to happen is it will probably take a long time. Uh, so, uh, yes, we can expect, I, I think, I, I anticipate that there will be some kind of um, fuzzy no- negotiations taking place and the Turks will get angry it's taking so long and maybe in, you know, October 30th or something, we'll, we'll hear an announcement on Friday afternoon after, uh, after the close of markets <laughs> and everyone's going home. But yeah, you're out of that one, are you? <laughs> the, the wheels at global affairs grind very slowly. So, uh, yeah. So, and, and of course, um, Turkey can't be trusted. We, this is an extraordinary example of where we've actually found, uh, evidence that's publicly available because it was made available from the, report uh, that Global Affairs did, the investigation of Global Affairs did, plus the Parliamentary Committee did, which shows that a NATO ally lied to us, absolutely lied to us. And uh, so it's, it, it would be also a bit extraordinary for us to resume trusting them so quickly. But, uh, you know, like, you, I mean, there are other affairs of state at play here, and it's not clear exactly how this is going to unfold, but uh, it appears the Turks expect this as a part of their uh, price for um, for dropping opposition to Sweden, of course, because uh, the backstory is Sweden has been accused of harboring uh, anti-government uh, Turks who the Erdogan government does not like, right? Exactly. The uh, uh, well, Erdogan government, which is not exactly a, uh, you know, which is sort of veered towards authoritarianism in the last few years. Uh, it's it's fascinating story, and we always appreciate your input into this and the research you do uh, to get us uh, the facts on this, Stephen. Thank you so much for this today. Really appreciate the time. Oh, you're welcome. Take care. Stephen Chase, uh, parliamentary reporter, senior parliamentary reporter for the Globe and Mail. And uh, as he says, uh, more to come on that story. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. I think we've been trapped for the last couple of decades. How much do things cost? How fast can we get patients through... Um, medical treatment, how many folks can you see in a day and how do we maximize or minimize each one of those metrics? I, I think those can't be measurements that we build the system around in whatever comes next. 
Uh, that's uh, Dr. Alika Lafontaine uh, speaking about, uh, well, the way we've been trying to approach healthcare and maybe the way we should be. And uh, that's also the focus of a, a new uh, report that has come out. It's called Roadmap for Reform, a consensus view of the viable options ahead for Canada's healthcare system. Uh, one of the co-authors of that joins us right now to talk about this. He is Don Drummond, who is a Stouffer Dunning Fellow and Adjunct Professor at the School of Policy Studies at Queen's University. Uh, Don, a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for this today. Oh, you're very welcome. I, I I remember having a discussion back in the day when this came out about the Romano report, which was supposed to be a groundbreaking uh, report and very insightful, and it was in many ways uh, about going forward on this. Uh, so, and and we always seem to lose our way. We kind of say, I guess we get rejuvenated and say, yeah, this this is what we should be doing, and and it happens for a little while. Then we get bogged down. Is is it because we're trying to do essentially? As, as Dr. Lafontaine said, the same thing over and over again and not understanding that we, we've got to pivot a little bit sometimes with our, our priorities and our approach? Well, before undertaking this report you just referred to, the roadmap, I thought long and hard of why there are so many reports. Uh, in the old days, actually on a bookshelf, in the new days, the digital equivalent of that, gathering dust, Romano report, including my report of 2012 and the Commission on the Reform of Ontario Public Services, my co-author's uh, effort on restructuring Ontario hospitals, all these things piled up without getting the action that they were seeking. So I didn't want to repeat the same thing ourselves. Why do the same thing? And I thought, one of the things I came up with, all of those reports that you referred to, all the ones I added, came in a context of cost cutting. And if you think yeah. back of the commission I chaired in 2011, 2012, its primary objective given to me was to save the province money. It did say, by the way, try to minimize the amount of China you break in the process, but we're really interested in getting savings. And I think that put it in a negative context. That made the public wary of change because... They view the cost cutting is going to Americanize the system. They don't want that. So they weren't supportive of it and the politicians. So we thought this time, I think our recommendations will save money. You'll see in our report, we did not put the emphasis on that. We put the emphasis on the quality and the quantity. Uh, the large number, 6.5 million people who aren't covered by primary care, better care of the elderly. Let's put it in a positive way and see if there's something the public can get behind. And then the politicians will maybe not lead, but at least they'll follow the public. That was our mindset at any rate. It's an interesting piece, I know, in, in your assessment of the, of the report here. Uh, we say perhaps the most formidable roadblock has been the public tolerance of the status quo originating in the once iconic reputation of Canada's publicly funded health care. And we fear the change with its uh, usual cost-saving objective is going to bring us closer to our southern neighbors, as you just mentioned here. Uh, I, I, and I hear that time and time again, Don. People say, no, 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 let's let's not overhaul this system. I mean, we still have the best healthcare system in the world. We, and we don't. Uh, you know, that might have been the case back in 1964 or whatever when we, we started with this the public health care with Medicare. Uh, but, uh, you know, we've been passed out by, by Scandinavian countries, by the UK, so many others, and we don't seem to want to learn from them and say, hey, maybe there is a better way. Well, of course, in Canada, we're trained from birth to compare ourselves uniquely to the United States. Yeah. And here's something where we actually gloat that we like what we've got better. Now, mind you, if you're a wealthy American or you're a good American insurance plan, they got a pretty darn good system, access to the greatest surgeons and all kinds of technology that we don't have. But of course, there's 40 million Americans who can't afford basic care, and we don't want that. So we think we're okay. 
But I thought we finally fit in the missing piece. And the missing piece was the Canadian public to finally say we're as mad as hell and we're not going to take it anymore and to give an imperative to the politicians to make change. And we saw that in 2021 in the New Brunswick election. At that point, there were 70,000 households that were not registered with a primary caregiver. That was front page. Every news story started off at the election. Four political parties, all their platforms were rallied around that. The party that won, the first thing they did is they created walk-in clinics and pharmacies led by nurse practitioners, a very smart move to make. And I thought, that's the way it's got to move. The public has to say, we're not going to take it anymore. And the politicians have to realize, if you want to get elected, you got to change this. I thought we were there. I'm not so sure, though. Forget all that context and just look at the latest Council of Federation meeting. Health was on the agenda. What did they say? How will have a health summit in the future? That's it. <laughs> it doesn't give you the impression that they are seized with the day and they're seized with the dissatisfaction, anger, of the public, their emergency rooms closing, can't get in to see anybody. I thought we were there, maybe not quite yet. At least the politicians maybe don't sense that they have to move. We've got to get them to feel they have to move and there are things that they can do. Some of them might be difficult and hence they're hesitant. Well, and and when the health ministers do get together, I mean, let's face it, they're communicating at the end of the session, Don, is usually uh, we need more money from the federal government, you know, period, end of sentence. And and that's bad enough because it's been the same script for about 25, 30 years now. But we, uh, the public, we buy that. We simply say, yeah, it's just underfunded. We give us more money, federal government, and, and everything's going to be fine. And they do sometimes, and it's not fine, but we still don't get that message. It's I feel like the coyote running after the roadrunner here. Yeah, well, as they did have this agreement with the federal government on funding in February, I guess they sort of left the shelf bare for discussion this time around, and they didn't fill it with very much. I, I'm not too much in despair with that. Not much action has ever come out of the Council of the Federation. Uh, it, it'll more likely come at a provincial level. And that's, you know, we, we can bemoan our divided structure with 10 provinces and three territories and the federal government, but and it lends itself well to experimentation. And you can see that when Ontario cut the price it was paying for generic drugs, it was like a light lit up across the whole country. Everybody, what? Ontario did that? Well, we're copying that. So it doesn't, they don't have to move together. Ontario can do this on its own for the most part. It is almost half of the country after all. And we've got a lot of problems. And these problems I mentioned, the, the large percentage of people are not connected with primary care, difficulty of accessing emergency care, the probability in your senior years, you will be literally institutionalized against your will instead of having home supports. All of those are very real and tangible in Ontario. It can move on its own. It's one of the things that seems to cut the, the discussion off, Don, is the debate, which is still raging here in Ontario, especially uh, with some of the uh, proposed changes that the Ford government has moved forward on, uh, private versus public. And and it, there's, this, there's this strong resistance here, if I, and, and it's well-funded resistance, that says you get private and you're going to get lousy health care, it's going to cost an arm and a leg, literally, uh, and, you know, it's got to be public, public, public. Everything has to be. Uh, and, and that seems to be the, the foundation uh, for the opposition to just about everything here. And, and again, there seems to be a large segment of the population that have bought into that. You know, it's, it's, yeah, it's got its, its problems and it's, it's got its limitations, but it's the, it's the best of all situations. And I'm not so sure that's true anymore. 
Well, this whole thing in public or private has become muddied. It's a semantic issue. After all, the biggest actors and are physicians. What are physicians? Aren't they privately individuals? They're self-employed, and that's private sector. They are paid through the public sector, and that's the big distinction. And it's a distinction that people lose. You remember back in 2003 when the McGinty government came into power, there were eight MRI machines that were in private clinics, and they had the political well, really a huge political pressure to buy those back, which they did. You fast forward to 2023. Do you think anybody cares about that anymore? If you can pull out your OHIP card and pay for it, I don't think anybody cares about that anymore. I often ask people and just said they had a blood test. So was it done private or public? And they always said, oh, it's public because it's done in the hospital. And I said, you do realize the blood labs and all kinds of hospitals are run by the private sector, right? And they said, I didn't know that, but I don't care. I pulled out my OHIP card. So we got private provision all over the place. Private provision under public care doesn't any longer seem to be controversial. Private pay is controversial, which is why we've not gone there. Um, we have enough difficulty getting reforms that should be well supported, as opposed to having that battle cry that'll get everybody's back up. We, maybe someday will come, maybe we need that someday. That's not at the top of my priority list, but we will see all kinds of private provision under public care. And we've already got lots of those. <laughs> I mean, think about it, it was decades ago that privatized meal service and laundry service. And so that part of it's been creeping up. What are we, we're, we're way beyond 30 public-private uh, partnerships and building hospitals. Uh, that was once very controversial. It isn't anymore, opinion changes. Well, and I guess, as you mentioned in the report, that's what we're shooting for here is for uh, opinions to change and, and for us to be more accepting. And uh, I, I guess the element to this, too, and I think you talked about this in the report, is that we're not reinventing the wheel here. I mean, other parts of the world, are, some of the ones we just talked about, are already doing this and doing it effectively. So don't be afraid of change. Uh, if there's no change, things are never going to improve. I mean, we have to understand that reality, too, don't we? Yeah, sometimes I wish we were located a little bit differently. Um, let's just say we are in the geographical proximity of Denmark, for example. We probably have much better care of seniors because they do. Um, they have not built any long-term care beds since 1987. They've taken 30% of them out of existence. If you're having trouble getting out of your bathtub, you call your community service, and very shortly somebody's bolted a bar on the side of your bath. You have trouble making your meals. You get the equivalent of meals on wheels. Can't cut your lawn. You get your lock on it. You can do an awful lot of those services for $50 to $100 a day. That's way less than the cost of institutional long-term care. And more importantly, that's what people want. But that is a standard of many other countries, which we don't look at. Uh, of all the OECD countries, we're tied for the bottom with Slovenia of spending the least portion of our gross domestic product on home care. And that's, again, because not much is interesting is done in the United States, but there's all kinds of better examples. Uh, Age-stratified villages in the United Kingdom, uh, dementia-friendly villages. You don't have to go that far to check out and see there are better people, but we don't tend to look. If we look beyond our borders, we tend to look in the United States only, and that's, that's way too narrow. Well, uh, here's hoping that uh, that we are mad enough that we're going to start uh, embracing some of this change. And uh, I, I encourage our listeners to check out the, 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 the report itself. It's called Roadmap for Reform. Uh, Don, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for this today. 
Oh, you're most welcome. Bye. Take care. Don Drummond, of course, uh, from Queen's University uh, and one of the co-authors of this uh, fine report. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.